Back to the basics. I, it's the whole point of Bitcoin. The whole point is of Bitcoin is that you can own the money. You can you can possess the keys and the property in such a way that it is not possible with any other asset that I can think of. We we own houses, we own land, but guess what happens if you don't pay the real estate taxes? Like it's eventually going to catch up with you. You can hold gold in a safe in your home, but if well, if you don't pay your real estate taxes, like they're going to come take your gold or if somebody breaks in your house, like well, Bitcoin is the only asset you can have such extreme ownership to the point that memorizing 12 words in your head can be your wallet. That can be how you hold your Bitcoin. This is the Blue Collar Bitcoin Podcast, a show where average Joe firefighters explore the most important monetary technology of the 21st century. We talk Bitcoin, we talk finance, and we talk shit. In this chat, we speak to Seed, the gentleman, nay we say shadowy supercoder, who heads up the Seed Signer project. If you are not aware, the Seed Signer is a stateless Bitcoin signing device that can be built from inexpensive parts. This is a really cool project. If you have any nerd in you at all, you want to build one of these yourself right away. With Seed, we talk about his background as a police computer forensics expert. We talk about the reasoning for keeping your own keys versus letting a custodian hold them. We dive into a bit of self-custody basics, and we talk a bit more about advanced setups, i.e. multi-sig. Self-custody is extremely important in Bitcoin. Make sure you completely understand practice with everything before moving your whole stash into a new wallet. You can follow Seed at SeedSigner on Twitter. And you can follow us at blue underscore collar BTC or send us an email at blue collar Bitcoin podcast at Gmail. As cool as the seed signer is a cold card, it is not. The new cold card Mark IV adds layers and layers of security for your keys that is simply not found on other signing devices. It features not one, but two secure elements, each made by a different vendor. Redundancy, security, and safety are paramount when you are storing generational wealth. Our choice for absolute best security is the cold card. CoinKite makes and sells everything you need for cold storage, metal seed plates, punches, industrial SD cards, and the cold power to keep that cold card a pure virgin, never having touched a computer ever. Use our code BCB to receive 5% off a new cold card, Mark IV. Blue Collar Bitcoin is sponsored by Ledin. Ledin is a very unique financial services company with a highly principled Bitcoin forward perspective. They are the first ever digital asset lending platform to undergo a formal proof of reserves attestation, where an independent public accountant regularly attests that the company is properly accounting for client assets. Simply put, this company mirrors and embraces the transparency, accountability, and auditability of the Bitcoin protocol and network itself. If you've listened to this show much at all, you've certainly noticed that we advise our listeners to be careful manage risk, and not get over leveraged. And that does include ensuring that any borrowing and lending decisions you make make sound mathematical sense based on your lifestyle and specific situation. Where available in your jurisdiction, Ledin offers a menu of powerful financial services. Keep ownership of your Bitcoin and access dollar loans with Ledin Bitcoin-backed loans. Harness your Bitcoin holdings to buy a new property or finance the home you already own with the upcoming Ledin Bitcoin mortgage product. Save Bitcoin and USDC to have access to Ledin dollar loans or trading service if available. You can look into Ledin's well-architected menu of services at ledin.io. 
Visit start.ledin.io slash bluecollarbitcoin to sign up and you'll get $10 in USDC for creating and funding an account. All views and language expressed by the hosts and guests in this podcast are solely their personal opinions and do not reflect their employers or organizations they are associated with. Do not treat any of the content in this podcast as investment advice or as an inducement to follow a particular strategy. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. Josh, we got a spook on the show. Mr. Seed. You know what? The thing is, cops may be good for a few things. Like when we go on psych calls, Dan, they're good for absorbing punches. They're good for hog tying crazy people. And apparently they're good for creating signing devices. Like who knew? You know? Yeah. Don't they call us like the, the blue canaries? Isn't that what you guys call? Oh, that's true. Yeah. yeah. Like for uh, that's for like <laughs> hazmat calls when there's like a bunch of chlorine fog in the air and you see <laughs> cops hitting the ground. Like, yeah, that's exactly what you guys are, canaries. <laughs> Go check right. out that smoke-filled building. Report back on what you see in there. <laughs> if that um, smoke's I think not we black saw a guy in there with a gun, too. <laughs> yeah. Seed, seriously, thanks for giving us some time tonight. We're uh, we're pumped to chat. Yeah, I'm excited for this conversation, too. Um, I got to say right off the bat, I got to, you know, nobody sees the video, but I do have a different background than Josh is used to seeing. I am on vacation. I'm like hesitant to say this because this is like taking it to a whole nother level of podcast Bitcoin loser. <laughs> I am on vacation in an Airbnb in somebody else's master bedroom and my family is hanging out in the living room. I'm almost asking for like an intervention here. You know, yeah. I mean, this is kind of pathetic, but it's well, like I mean, how far can we push uh, Murphy's law? Yeah, so Dan, exactly. Dan has escaped his parents' basement and is now on vacation in an Airbnb. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> um, Seed, tell us about yourself. Give our audience an intro to you and your background and how the hell you went from being a cop to making uh, do-it-yourself signing devices. Yeah, it's, it's, uh, it's I guess, a long story, but high level. Um, I was a cop for 15 years. Uh, was for the first three years like a um, you know writing tickets, responding to fights in progress, the usual cop kind of stuff. And about three years into my career, I was asked uh, by my chief, "Hey, there's this digital forensic unit that is kind of spinning up and looking for people. Is that something that would interest you?" Because he knew I I have you know a little bit of a background in technology and computers, um, and so it sounded amazing, and I jumped at the opportunity. So. For the first, I was for the first like probably two or three years. You know, you you go from kind of um, being much more of a, a user level of knowledge about computers to for like a couple of years, you just drink through the fire hose like every day at work, learning about everything from you know, it, it's basically like a CS degree that you're trying to pick up on your own. Everything yeah. from you know, binary math to some programming to how storage works to how data is physically laid out on volumes, operating system artifacts, mobile phones, just like if whatever happens to come across your desk and that's the the digital forensic exam you're working on, you have to learn enough to be able to speak and write intelligently enough to, you know, to analyze evidence and write a police report. And um, I was super lucky to have uh, received a lot of great training through, you know, uh, private partners and and as well as like U.S. federal government uh, organizations. And um, uh, actually, I heard of Bitcoin first at work, and um, uh, 
uh, I, I kind of refer to my Bitcoin journey as like uh, two acts. Act one is kind of Bitcoin, the investment, and act two is like Bitcoin, the um, uh, the freedom technology slash uh, a counter of government and government spending. And, and so, yeah, I, the, the first kind of chapter of my Bitcoin life was much more about wh- how much is this investment going to appreciate? And then um, I, 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 I'm slightly ashamed to say it, but we can sold everything in 2017 and don't be envious because it was the wrong part of 2017. If you don't mind and, us asking uh, why, yeah. what pro- I mean, I can, I can certainly understand reasons having studied Bitcoin history and, and the fork and everything. Was that part of it? What kind of scared you off and said, I'm cashing out? I'm assuming some healthy returns, but what other than that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I super blessed and super fortunate in that regard, even for being early in 2017, because I first heard of Bitcoin in early 2013. And, um, Dang, uh, what early, spooked early. me was, what spooked me was a few things. First, I think just in the background, my storage setup was horrible. I was using something called bitaddress.org to store coins, and I just printed out kind of public-private key pairs. And I, yeah. I'd done it being being a guy in forensics. I'd done it securely in the right way. Like I um, used a live CD and took the computer totally offline and printed these literally with a printer that I destroyed. This is something that's so unappreciated by people in the space at this point Mm. is that in 2017 and Dan and I were both involved back then. Sorry to cut you off. This shit was not anywhere near as locked down as as it is now. Not even close. Like you, I remember very clearly like splitting Bitcoin and Bitcoin cash back in the day. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done because it was, it was a significant (laughs) amount of Bitcoin and I had no idea if the route I was using was legitimate and it was just up in the air. Like who knows if this is going to work? If it doesn't, I'm losing a lot of money, but yeah, to your point, like this was nowhere near as institutionalized or as sound as it is today. Not or as user close. friendly. Yeah. I or, mean, I still have Bitcoin. I've, I have some orphaned Bitcoin cash out there somewhere. Kind of like I have orphaned Bitcoin cash the way Josh has illegitimate children all over this country. <laughs> and um, additionally, like paper wallets were a big thing. Like I remember at the firehouse, we were all getting, there was like six of us getting into it and we all had paper wallets. Nobody's doing that anymore. Dude, but we know yeah, a guy, yeah. Dan and I know a guy who mm, vacuumed painful. up a paper wallet that was worth like $1,300 in 2017 so actually, it's probably worth thirteen hundred dollars now, <laughs> yeah. but it's gone. It's time of year, but yeah, yeah. But the that that Bitcoin is gone because he vacuumed it up. It's gone. Yeah. So that spooked you, though, huh, Steve? That, like you, you were well, saying that. I I think that was kind of that was one of a few things going. On. So number two, just as timing would have it, um, as Bitcoin had gone through like this big bear market through 2014, 2015, and then into into twenty sixteen. Um, I, had, I I didn't know what to expect from this investment, but I always told myself in the back of my mind that if this appreciates to the level that um, my wife and I can pay off our house and we don't really carry a lot of debt beyond that, but if we could pay off our mortgage and have kind of like a fresh start, absolutely debt-free life, yeah, um, it seemed like a pipe dream like in 2013 and 2014. But then as we got into, because I, I kind of kept buying you know, through the bear market. And as we got into 2017 in like the first few months, like 
it was flirting with this being a reality that we'd, we'd be able to, you know, it was a binary thing. I'd sell everything and we were able to totally legit, as much as I hated doing it, legally pay the taxes and everything. And then had uh, enough money left over that we were able to pay off our mortgage. And we were, it was getting into probably like March or April of 2013. It was, or I'm sorry, 2017. It was starting to flirt with that amount. And so I was on edge because, I mean, I, you guys maybe in a similar boat, like I, I'm came up in a blue collar household, like people Mm -hmm. like me are not accustomed to those kind of financial returns. And you start to freak out thinking like, well, a, a bird in the hand is better than two in the bush. And like, what if, what if, because this is also the, the third thing I'll talk about is uh, like Bitcoin cash, like you alluded. And this was when the fork wars were starting to heat up. And I'm thinking like, if I lose the ability to pay off my house, because yeah. some geeks are arguing about parameters and software like that, that I, I probably am more likely to never forgive myself for that than if I sell this investment to her. Yep. Totally understand um, that. Yeah. So, um, and those, the paper wallets, like, like you talked about for a while, like paper wallets were almost the gold standard of Bitcoin security. Like before hardware wallets became popularized or before, like you you might think hardware wallets, as soon as they came out, they were like, Oh, it's now we have hardware wallets, but those hardware wallets took a while to establish themselves as a trustworthy, like reliable way to store Bitcoin over time. So you know, in the beginning, it was Bitcoin Core, which is, you know, what do you, you can encrypt your backup. That's, but you still feel like unsafe about that. So a lot of people use paper wallets. And then there were some kind of specialized projects. Um, I can't think of the name. Trace Mayer had financed uh, kind of an early air gap setup where you could run an offline machine that was just used. Glacier protocol, right? It wasn't Glacier. It was something before that. I, I'll be kicking myself after this because, um, yeah, it came up in conversation the other day, but yeah, whatever. Um, so I, I, part of 2017 was just, I, I don't think I was comfortable with my, my storage setup. And I, that is part of what fuels me with Seedsteiner is I think that if people are more comfortable with their setup, um, they're less likely to have, you know, these horrible paper hands yeah. and, and sell everything. I couldn't agree more. We talk about that a lot on this show, Seed, and that's, if you're going to cold store, you at least need to vaguely understand what's actually happening. You know, I mean, even if it's as simple as, you know, a desktop wallet and a node, and even if it's just kind of the, the, the basic self-sovereignty steps at home, having some degree of understanding of what the key is, where the key is, when it's exposed, stuff like this. I'm not here to knock Trezor and Ledger. Like there's a place and a time for that. And it's a fit for a lot of people. But having their, you know, nice user experience and just plugging the device in with USB doesn't, for a lot of people, totally teach them what's really going on. Um, and, and I think that's an important step towards being comfortable, as you just said. I, I, I call like, you know, what you mentioned about that user experience of plugging it in and interacting with, you know, um, some software that may not be. It, it, it may not make it clear kind of what's going on under the hood. I, I call that like the bebop boop experience. Like, you know, you plug something in, I entered a pin code that is associated with that, but I'm not really, really sure what happened, but it says I can send my transaction now. So like everything must be good. Um, but you also mentioned plugging a device in via USB. And uh, for me, with my forensics background, like that just, 
plugging in a Trezor or my first hardware wallet, I think it was a Keep Key, but whatever it was, plugging a hardware wallet in via USB made me nervous because mm. um, if you can update the firmware with that device, like if you end up with the you know the wrong uh, the wrong software version or end up with some malicious code or there's some sort of uh, malware on your system, like in theory and practice, bad things could potentially happen. So yeah. as to kind of skip forward, like, so I was super blessed uh, paying off our house kind of paved the way for me to start to think about a path out of law enforcement because I was, um, uh, so for the great majority of the 12 years I was doing digital forensics, I worked in crimes against children. And that was um, very gratifying work, but also very difficult work. And towards mm. the end of it, um, they, they don't offer a lot. I don't know how it is with firefighters. You guys probably have like comfort dogs and all, all sorts of we stuff. We get it all. We get it all. See, you guys get nothing. We get it all. I hate to tell you. Yeah. But we, we didn't have... With the amount of work Josh does at our agency, he should literally just throw on a ski mask, walk into Village Hall with a gun and rob the registers. I mean, it's pathetic. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it, but I mean, it, it is, though. It, it, in all seriousness, um, it, it, it can wear on you. I mean, our job's the same way where, you know, we see a lot of fucked up medical shit and, and yeah. a lot of just yeah, yeah. elderly people or anyone comorbid people suffering. I'm not saying it's the same as, you know, crimes against children, but you do it for 15, 20 years and you, you, you have a different lens on the world than the people at the dinner parties you're with for the most part. Oh, no, for, for totally. And you, um, you guys see a lot of people in a lot of difficult life situations, mm, yeah. whether they're elderly people who, who may not have anybody in their lives to care for them. Exactly. Or like, homeless people who are grappling with, you know, significant health issues or significant mental health issues. There's a lot of, there's a lot of ugliness out there in the world. And, um, I, I just felt like there was not a lot of support for me personally at the agency I was working for. Um, in terms of, it, it was something that I'd recognize as an ongoing theme with, uh, uh, I, I was very fortunate. I mentioned before I go to training and, got to the point in my career where I was starting to assist like lead trainings in different parts of the country. And I was getting to interact with a lot of other law enforcement officers. And after training during the day, what do we do? We go out and drink, we go out and talk. And most of them were dealing with this kind of like, uh, 2008 through 2015, like explosion in crimes against children, because it was, um, kind of during the same time that, uh, Napster and then LimeWire and then, um, uh, um, not Tor, but I, I'm, I'm forgetting myself. The other peer-to-peer network that, that was kind of like the the uh, one after LimeWire that actually people still use today. Um, gosh, my brain's failing me already. Um, as there was an explosion in these peer-to-peer file-sharing protocols, like there was a huge proliferation of uh, illicit material on the internet to where you had to be a real weirdo, you know, and, and go into a porn store in the 1970s or 1980s Right. You know, or after that to where like you know, maybe in the 90s or the 2000s, you might find a local bulletin board or something shady like that. But like what what I'm getting at is like I ran into a lot of other police officers who did these type of investigations and who spent hours every day sorting through the most horrendous images and videos you can imagine who were just like hurting inside. And you could just tell it, it affects your relationships. It affects how you inter- interact with your kids and kind of like the lives that they've had. I don't want to believe this too much. So I was looking for a way out and 
I was super blessed that Bitcoin kind of paved that way out for me. And um, my wife works. She she uh, does pretty well in the corporate slash professional world. So I was blessed to have the opportunity to be a stay at home dad uh, for my kids for the last three or four years. Very cool. Um, and it's been it's been a tremendous journey and, and what a blessing. And, and uh, I'm in the summertime right now. So I have a little bit of enhanced responsibilities in terms of the kids being home all day. And we got to find things to do and get them to camps and do all that kind yep. of stuff. We're but both very familiar as, with that. That's bullshit. You know, we're at, Josh <laughs> yeah. and I are at different phases. I have two real little ones. Josh's kids are starting to go to school. And when he gets off that 24 hour shift and goes home and does absolutely nothing, has no responsibilities. I'm envious. Um, I'm mm, looking for them to get school. Age. It's in the middle of no responsibilities and still have to deal with bullshit. So like, I don't <laughs> think Dan is quite characterizing that in the right way, but yeah, we're, uh, it's quasi no responsibility. Point Things is though, changed. they get off of yeah. school and that's awesome, but it's also like, Oh, there goes seven hours a day when, when daddy was free. Yeah. Yep. Um, yep. now are you sleeping through the night yet or are they, they getting older than that? Um, I have a two and a half year old and a 10 week old. So the 10 week old is not sleeping yeah, yeah. through the night. Um, yeah. So when you Dan characterizes it that way, I have an eight year old and a five year old. So they sleep through the night. So he's right about that, but they still get up at like 6am and they're yeah. ready to fuck shit up. Yeah. <laughs> See, I got two questions based on some things sure. you said. The first one is I'm interested what the, what your contact with Bitcoin was in 2013. And then secondly, sure. your reintroduction to Bitcoin after selling it and where where the, the seed signer idea comes from. Right. So the first question was, um, there was another examiner in the forensic lab I was working at who was, he had been assigned a case where was a local kid who had gotten fairly nice uh, gaming rig for Christmas or his birthday or something like that. He, he lived in a nicer part of town. So he's probably a rich kid. Got a nice computer, and he is apparently mining Bitcoin with his dual GPU gaming computer. And this is 2012, 2013, so it's still viable to mine a reasonable amount of Bitcoin with uh, a couple GPUs, just barely. We, we started to see FPGAs and ASICs, but um, uh, anyhow, so he's mining a little bit of Bitcoin at home. He's buying weed on the Silk Road. He's having it shipped to his doorstep. Uh, what an entrepreneur. Genius. Right, exactly. <laughs> Sign this kid up. Uh, and he's breaking into smaller bags and then of course, taking it to school and making a tidy little hustle out of, uh, you know, mining Bitcoin and, and turning Office it into cash. Power, at school. Yeah. Beautiful right, thing. Right. Yeah. Um, so I, that kind of took me down the rabbit hole of like, what the heck is this thing? Like what, why, why would people be contributing all this compute power to it? Like, what does that accomplish? And it was just like a lot, like I remember being on Bitcoin talk and they had all these weird limits on, on there. Like you, you either had to like, you had to browse for a certain amount of minutes or something before you could actually post. And I remember like the first thing they, they suggest you read is of course the white paper. And Satoshi was an actual member of Bitcoin talk. And I always remember seeing his profile and he had like the highest number of stars and the hero, like hero tag and everything like that. And um, so it was like, Bitcoin talk. And then I probably got more involved in Reddit was a bit, was a big thing at the time before Twitter kind of took over the, the Bitcoin social landscape. But so anyhow, I spent like the next um, few years, like 
learning about Bitcoin and also shitcoining. And I had um, I had GPUs running in my basement. I, I think I had about at the peak like a total of ten GPUs running, like literally all sorts of shit. This was kind of like the first generation of shit coins, like uh, <laughs> like first gen shit coins. It, like yeah, but um, so like you know, you on Bitcoin Talk, somebody would post like, "Oh, next Wednesday, I'm going to launch this coin, and it's going to be a quote fair launch." And so you wait, could wait. Can point- I ask you what were the main shit coins you remember from that era? Just so that we can tell people, like, all right, so there were like three shit coins eras, as far as I'm concerned. There was like the 2013 to 15 era. There was the 15 to 17 era, and there's like the 17 to 22 era. So. In your mind, what existed then that seemed realistic that is totally dead and forgotten about right now? I Litecoin may as well be totally dead, but it was like obviously the it wasn't the first altcoin, um, but one of the earliest. Yeah, uh, there was another one called Feathercoin, which was kind of like Litecoin on steroids in terms of the block time and uh, the issuance schedule and all that kind of stuff. There's one called Redcoin. That for some reason I, I remember that one. Um, I think Potcoin originally originally <laughs> launched back then, but it didn't. You didn't really hear about it until Dennis Rodman got involved several years later. <laughs> Dennis Rodman got involved. History, history repeats. It's awesome. Dennis Rodman. I I mean the Litecoin narrative to go off on this tangent. I was compelled by the Litecoin narrative when I first got in. Like it's Bitcoin but better. I mean it's literally just like it was early. This was seventeen, so it it's wasn't Bitcoin, super it's early. It's the silver to Bitcoin's gold. Yeah, that was except that's that makes what, sense. Except for it wasn't real. Like in reality, that might seem realistic, but like in the world of digital everything, like that makes no sense. Yeah, right. As you learn more, and and as I learned about the history of silver, about basically silver only became to be a monetary metal because Bitcoin just wasn't divisible enough to handle like s- smaller transactions. So. I guess people were in the market for a different metal that, you know, had some similar properties or whatever. And that's kind of how s- silver came to be. Uh, well, you meant gold, right? Metal. Yeah, I like how that was a, a Bitcoin Freudian slip. It was a Freudian slip. slip. You, <laughs> you said Bitcoin yeah, I, instead oh. of gold. <laughs> that's, that's Sil- Silver was the silver to Bitcoin. Um, <laughs> yeah, that was a slip. <laughs> wait, so... so did it was it after interacting with this specific case with this kid that did you do enough research right then and there to start accumulating yourself? So like everybody does, um, you you somehow think you're smarter than the system, and so I remember pitching my wife in the living room, um, saying like, "There's this company who makes this thing called a Bitcoin miner, and they haven't actually like finished the design yet, but if we give them money now, like." when they finish the design and prove it can work, they're going to send us one of these machines and we'll be able to plug it in like somewhere in the house. And we'll be able to basically like create units of this digital currency that I'm like, you know, down the rabbit hole learning so much about. And much to my wife's credit, like uh, she, she went for it and was like, Oh, that makes sense. Like, yeah, you should spend like $1,500 or whatever it was on this, on this like magic internet money printing machine that blah, 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 blah. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it was uh if i if I, it was called butterfly lab and they were actually an american company that had successfully developed an fpga and they um they they did in fact release a successful miner they, they were always embroiled in controversy because 
it was always believed that they were mining with the equipment for a couple of weeks before they'd ship it out. And so they could take advantage of, because this was just when ASICs were starting to come on the, the scene. So the, the mining difficulty was like exploding. And so they would like mine with the machines until the difficulty like went up that significant amount. And then they would mail them out to like other people to, I guess, you know, capture the rest of the return with the devices. What a nice, nice little scam they had going. For sure. Yeah. Um, so another kind of like fun aside is as as I was doing all of these shit coins, um, we actually mined in the forensic lab at work. Uh, but it was so we were now we're talking. Wait, 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 wait. So, some- wait, wait. Let me understand this for sure. Let me make sure I completely understand this. So the you mined on the in the forensics lab with their electricity or like they understood that they were mining Bitcoin and they were okay with it. It was, it was, it was all sanctioned by my boss. I have experiment, experiment um, for the case, right? Trying to better understand. Well, it's not like Dan and I have ever thought about that. Like plugging in an ASIC at the firehouse. Never. We've never I'm thought sure about you guys that at never, all. Never thought about that at all. Um, <laughs> no, we, uh, so my boss was very cool about because, you know, technology, and computers and mobile phones and everything, it, it's a continually evolving field. Like there's new stuff coming out every month, every year that, you know, we're going to have to be familiar with and comfortable with because eventually we're going to see this in case. Um, and as digital currency was kind of becoming more popular and Bitcoin's growing, like part of, you know, it was kind of like, I think Google at some point would give their employees like 20% of their work week just to say like, find something you're interested in and curious about and just like work on that or contribute to it or something and just count that as part of your employment. My boss didn't explicitly have that, but if you found something that really interested you, um, like for me for a while, it was password cracking for another guy in the lab. It was uh, mobile device forensics and mobile phones. And another guy, especially he was kind of like hard drive recovery for failing hard drives. If you found something that interested you, my boss was very cool about, um, uh, supporting that and like if it if there's any business case that could be made that it would be of use at some point in the future like he he would do what he, he could to help you so i'm deep down this this digital currency rabbit hole and at the time um obviously you know we didn't have an asic in the forensic lab or anything like that but we did have a very cool training room with 25 24 25 um decent ish computers in it and at the time it was kind of the trend in shit coins because GPU mining had gotten so crowded that there were a limited number of shit coins that all you had to mine them with a CPU They were like CPU only coin. And they would like change. They would either use algorithms that nobody had figured out how to run yet on a GPU, or they would rotate the algorithm. So it would change every some number of blocks, or whatever. So anyhow, for some number of months, I set up all the, in this training room when we weren't using the training room to mine you know these shit coins and then back then there was an exchange called btce and um you know it's I, it's out of eastern europe but you get and you get an account on this exchange with no kind of kyc no like you just sign up with an email address and it's like all right send us your uh, cryptocurrency and you can trade it for other cryptocurrency so i spent a fair amount of time mining prime coins which was one of these early CPU only coins. And every day I would transfer out the prime coin that we'd mined and send it to this uh, BTC exchange. And then I would uh, trade it for Bitcoin. And then 
the forensic lab was kind of like keeping Bitcoin on a balance sheet. And um, when we got into the first, I think at the peak, because I, you know, probably traded into a few Bitcoin by that point. And at the peak of 2013, um, there was a service. I can't remember what it was, but you could like send this or th- this company Bitcoin and they would buy something for you. Like whatever, you know, a computer, whatever you want, they would buy it for you and ship it to you. And they'd handle all of the you know exchange of converting your Bitcoin to dollars. And so I bought a new iMac with Bitcoin um, and had it shipped to the forensic lab because it was like, it's the forensic lab's money. Like, we're going to use this for work purposes. So it just mm-hmm. made sense to me. And we always have trouble getting equipment, you know, because you're a government organization. You guys, I'm sure, know how that goes. And um, so I ordered an iMac and had it shipped to the lab. And it shows up in the big iMac case, blah, 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 straight from Apple. And my boss is like, what in the hell? Like, <laughs> how, how did you buy this with your personal money? Like, how did this happen? And I, you know, he knew that we'd been mining and stuff and that the price had gone up, but he, he didn't. He didn't totally get it, but it kind of clicked for him then. And um, you're like, now you offer. could have bought a Ferrari. Yeah. Yeah. Now, now, yeah. Well, it, <laughs> yeah. But, um, so we had Bitcoin on the balance sheet for a while, like in the, in the run up in 2017, um, we didn't spend quite as much, but we did buy everybody nice monitors, like, uh, nice dual widescreen monitors, which helps a lot with real estate for different yeah. forensic tools. And, stuff. and so a little we, bit of marijuana for each guy. For sure. <laughs> and, and just a dab of cocaine. <laughs> so if, <laughs> just for experimentation purposes in the lab. For know? sure. And mushrooms. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so seed like, so we're here talking about like mining Bitcoin back in the day, but everyone is listening to us saying like, how does this matter? Like what, what, what does this matter to me? So what, where I think this does matter is where your expertise comes in, which is tell us about where and why you should be using your own custodial devices for storing your Bitcoin. Like What's the reason for not storing your Bitcoin on BlockFi or Celsius or Coinbase or any of the other custodians? Like, give us some good reasons why we should not be holding our money in places where we don't hold the keys. And why is holding our keys so fucking important? Back to the basics. Love it. Back to the basics. It's the whole point of Bitcoin. The whole point of Bitcoin is that you can own the money. You You can possess the keys and the property in such a way that it is not possible with any other asset that I can think of. Like we, we own houses, we own land, but guess what happens if you don't pay the real estate tax? Like, Gone. It's eventually going to catch up with you. Like you can hold gold in a safe in your home, but like if, well, if you don't pay your real estate taxes, like they're going to come take your gold or if somebody breaks in your house, like, well, Bitcoin is like the only asset you can have such extreme ownership to the point that, Memorizing 12 words in your head can be your wallet. That can be how you hold your Bitcoin. So that's, for me, that's like one major thing is that is the whole point of this asset is that we don't have to like have third-party custodians hold it and then issue IOUs for it, kind of like, you know, everything else has become. But at a practical level, like we've seen over the last couple of weeks, like there is unfortunately like a lot of leverage and a lot of rehab apothecation is built up in the bitcoin ecosystem and a lot of clowns a lot yeah, of clowns people holding their own coins help 
it, it, it honestly really helps prevent a lot of these shenanigans that these firms are able to pull by, um, you know, uh, what the, the one thing I'm thinking of is like, it was with BlockFi. Like if you're a retail, um, if you have a retail account with BlockFi and you want to borrow money or anything like that, like you have to, you have to over collateralize, collateralize your loan just in case there's a margin call or anything like that. And even then, like you are subject to a margin call if your capital on hand exceeds the value of your loan, if there's a drop in price or something like that. But these huge um, trading firms, you know, are able to essentially like escape that over collateralization. And, you know, it's just, it's just like the fiat finance system where not to the extreme degree that a lot of banks are running a fractional reserve, but a lot of these services uh, are able to functionally run a fractional reserve because they're lending out more um, than the assets that they you know have under their control. And that, so to get back to your original question, um, self-custody, like it, it helps you avoid all of these reindeer games and it helps you take responsibility for what is truly yours. You don't have to worry about rug pulls, you don't have to worry about, you know, somebody's server getting compromised or, um, you know, it, it, it's this extreme form of self-reliance and ownership. And you, you can be your own, be your own man. Is that sexist to say, but yeah. You know, this point is so freaking simple yet. So freaking important. Bitcoin is the world's first digital bearer asset. But if you're not exactly. taking custody of your Bitcoin, guess what? You're not reaping the benefits of a bare asset, right? If you are not custodying your Bitcoin, right, you're exposed to promises dependent on promises, systemic risk that's at sort of an unparalleled level in today's financial system. You know, as you said, leverage, reckless rehypothecation, like you can exit all of this shit by cold storing your Bitcoin. Now, you need to be careful. We're constantly saying on this show, don't get out over your skis. Make sure you have an inheritance plan. You know what you're doing. But yeah, I'm just echoing exactly what you said. You're not, you're not taking advantage of the real discovery here unless you actually possess this. And you don't actually possess it unless you hold your own keys. It's that simple. And w- one more thing I'd point out is that uh, self-custody is foundational to more private Bitcoin use. So for people who... Um, People who are interested in what do they they call them collaborative spends now, or they used to be known as you know mixing coins, or I, I don't know what the the correct terminology is right now. But to use Bitcoin in a more private way, the very first step is taking custody of your coins, and then you can build on top of it from there. So, what is the point of Seed Signer? Let's get to this now. So, what makes it different? What hole are you filling? in the self-custody landscape because it's unique and empowering, but I, I think it's worth explaining to people what you're doing and why it's different than them buying a ledger, a treasure or, or whatever. Right. There's, there's a couple of different advantages to seed signer. One is um, it's something that you build from commodity hardware. So for anyone who's not aware, the core ingredients to a seed signer are a um, ideally a very specific version of the raspberry Pi. A lot of people are familiar with Raspberry Pis. They're used in building a node at home. Right. But um, there's there's a smaller version of the Raspberry Pi called a Raspberry Pi Zero. And then if we dial into that uh, one step further, there's a very specific version of the Raspberry Pi Zero called a version 1.3. And the special thing about that uh, particular uh, version of Zero is that it does not have Wi-Fi and it doesn't have Bluetooth. So 
the absence of wireless communications makes it this kind of natural, very air-gapped yet inexpensive little computer that you can um, run a, a full Linux operating system on, but without having to worry about it having you know the vulner- vulnerability of being connected to via Wi-Fi or via Bluetooth. So um, to jump back where I was from that, uh, the components are this Raspberry Pi Zero. Then we have um, like a, you can think of it like a little video game controller with a screen on it. So it's a display and control hat that is installed on top of the Raspberry Pi. And then the third ingredient is a camera that you attach to the bottom of the Raspberry Pi. So you have a screen and controls, a little tiny air gap computer, and then a camera. So the only way this thing can talk to the outside world is through information that's displayed on the screen and then what it's able to read in through the camera. So being able to buy this um, uh, commodity hardware without someone else knowing that you're planning to use it for a Bitcoin purpose uh, largely nullifies what some people would refer to as a supply chain attack. So when you buy a hardware wallet, and it's inherent to all hardware wallets, because that device is explicitly used to either secure Bitcoin or to secure Bitcoin and or other cryptocurrencies, the use case for that device is known from the time it's manufactured all the way through to when it's packed up and then potentially in the mail. If depending on how the manufacturer actually orders, you know, the underlying components, the microcontroller and other stuff uh, for the hardware wallet, like it's potentially known what that device is going to be before it's even made. So being able to build uh, what I call a signing device instead of a hardware wallet um, Mm -hmm. out of commodity hardware takes this supply chain attack out of the question. Um, And another kind of like spin on that, which wasn't apparent to me when I first um, kind of fell into the idea, because there are parts uh, largely like most things that are quote invented, like all this stuff had been created in different ways by other people before me. it also, um, when we came on to the Human Rights Foundation's radar, we received a grant from them last fall. Um, Didn't know that. That's awesome. Yeah, we super lucky, super fortunate to receive a grant from the Human Rights Foundation. I was invited to speak on a panel at their um, Oslo Freedom Forum, which was held in Miami in 2021. Um, and what they partly recognized as an advantage of the device was kind of related to this. Uh, defeating the supply chain attack was if you are a Bitcoiner or someone who's attempting to use Bitcoin as an activist in an adversarial environment or maybe in a part of the world where uh, Bitcoin use is discouraged or maybe even outright banned, um, you're kind of limited in terms of your Bitcoin storage tools. You're limited to you know, paper wallets or um, a mobile phone wallet, hot wallet in that regard, because uh, it, it, it can be tough, one, to get hardware wallets in some parts of the world because they're either just not available or because the only place to buy them is through the black market. And you, you don't really want to buy like a security critical mm, device no, from definitely not, you know, some sort of black market source. So what seed center enables is uh, for people I've had a couple of people, for example, in Iran reach out to me who um, just really were uh, excited about the device because they're able to order these not Bitcoin specific parts and assemble it and use it privately in their home without anybody else to know that they're saving with Bitcoin or interacting with the Bitcoin protocol in any way. So that's kind of another advantage uh, of the yeah. Seed model. So badass. Um, that like, is. It, it makes yeah. me think, I think one key theme, Seed, in, the, in this space is it's not that everybody will, but it's the fact that you can 
that matters, right? And that's why this is an empowerment tool. Like if you think into the future, which we need to do, if we're believers in Bitcoin, expect draconian measures. You know, we've already seen them in the world. We're probably going to, in certain parts, see more of them. How are people going to properly store this stuff under regimes or leadership that don't understand this or outright, you know, trying to eradicate it? And it's it's initiatives, open source initiatives like yours that are laying the foundation for empowerment for people to access this asset. It's 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 amazing, dude. It's fucking awesome. So you could sit there and think that like, oh, I have a Trezor or a Ledger or a cold card or whatever. But this is an, this is another device, uh, an ancillary device that you can use for your multi-sig setup. So like you have a cold card, a Trezor, and now you could potentially put together a seed signer for a very small outlay of cash. And this is just doubling down on making the amount of your exposure to the outside world less each and every time. So like you're exposed with ledger because they obviously got, they got hacked. Everybody knows who you are. You're exposed with treasure potentially with cold card. They've, they don't keep anyone's information. So you're probably not exposed there, but you have a cold card and then you have a seed, a seed signer layers and layers and layers of not being known and having a multi-sig setup, which is, extremely important. It's another tool on the spectrum of sovereignty options, right? Exactly. You see this. And that's another good point. That's feedback I've gotten from, you know, a lot of people who are, who are uh, very privacy conscious in terms of their Bitcoin uses, like being able to assen- assemble this, uh, order the parts and assemble this on your own um, helps not land you on yet another list of Bitcoiners because of different services that you, mm. you know, potentially vendors you buy from or services that you may use to acquire Bitcoin or, or whatever other company Bitcoin space. So the, the commodity hardware, um, that's kind of one aspect of it. The second aspect of it that, that came somewhat uh, through, I recognize the value of it by virtue of my digital forensics background. And it's something that, um, so to, to kind of get back into my story, in 2017, sold Bitcoin, uh, was a little bit embarrassed about it afterwards. And then like the price just kept going up and up. So there was like a long, long, probably about a year where I just didn't even want to hear or think about Bitcoin because every time I heard about it, the price was like a few thousand dollars higher. And I'm just thinking of like, oh, I, I could have like not just paid off my house, but bought a vacation house somewhere. Yeah, <laughs> like if yeah. I would have just been a little yeah. bit more patient. So for a while, like I didn't want to think about Bitcoin. And then in 2018, the price started to come back down and we're going back into a bear market. And I find myself kind of listening to the same Bitcoin podcasts and starting to kind of follow the same accounts on Twitter and read more about Bitcoin. So at this time, like I'm, I'm, I'm paying more attention to the U.S. Uh, federal deficit and what I feel like is, you know, an unsustainable financial path for our government. And you, you start I have kids that are getting a little bit older and you start thinking about like, what, what is the, this place that I'm going to be leaving behind for them? And I started to think about Bitcoin as, as a uh, more of a check on the power of the government to potentially separate money from state and make the government more responsible, more accountable with the, the resources that, that they're able to, to get from you know, citizens. And so as I started kind of averaging back into Bitcoin, uh, I'm looking for a better way to store my stuff that's not just a paper wallet in my underwear drawer, basically. And so I hear a, a podcast that Stefan Lavera did with a guy called Michael Flaxman, who's a kind of a security researcher, cryptographer. 
and he wrote this thing called the, I believe it's called the Bitcoin 10X Security Guide. And it's an open source um, document on GitHub. It's all out there in the open, but he was talking about some of his best practices for securing Bitcoin. And he also started, uh, he was talking about a program that I had heard called uh, Spectre Desktop. Mm-hmm. And we both used I actually hadn't heard of it. I hadn't heard of it before. Um, multi-sig was something that like ever since I had originally heard of the concept and it became possible in the protocol, I knew it was something that I wanted to use to sec- secure Bitcoin. But um, the tools for a long time just weren't there. There was like institutional custody with BitGo. But like in terms of the average Bitcoiners, like hands-on tools, they, they just weren't out there. And, uh, Spectre Desktop was one of the first. So I started looking at Spectre. And Spectre also had kind of uh, a companion project to their desktop mobile wallet, or not mobile wallet, desktop wallet coordinator software. It had something called the Spectre DIY, which was a, yeah. uh, a I they would, it's built as a hardware wallet, but um, you can't technically store the keys on it. But um, I would call it a signing device because by default, unless you elect to store your keys on there, it operates with this computer science principle called stateless. And what statelessness is just a fancy CS term for um, either everything or certain things are not remembered by a computing device once it's been turned off or once powers. Right. Um, and so you could use this Spectre DIY. Uh, you can input your private key into it. And then through this really elegant kind of process with Spectre Desktop, with the private key never leaving the device, you could prove that you cryptographically um, own the private key and were entitled to spend the coins. And you communicated that proof via QR code. You would um, read in, in Bitcoin parlance, it's referred to as a partially signed Bitcoin transaction, but you can just think of it as a draft transaction. And it's relayed from your laptop into this, uh, into this Spectre DIY signing device with QR codes. Several QR codes are are displayed, you scan them in with a little scanner, and then up on the device, it shows you like the proposed spend and you approve or deny. And then um, a new set of QR codes is displayed on the screen that again, contains cryptographic proof that you have the right private key or keys to be able to spend the funds. And you show that to your computer's laptop and it reads that, that transaction with the signatures into it. And then voila, you can now broadcast the transaction with the signatures and the blockchain, able to do the spend. But with my digital forensics background, this uh, this was a extremely elegant process. Yeah, this made sense with your security framework that you had in your head at work, right? That totally worked around this kind of uncomfortableness that I had with plugging in a USB device and having it communicate proof of you know private keys that way. You can also do it with a micro SD card like cold card does. But for me, this QR exchange process was like a beautifully elegant way to maintain an air gap and to use an extremely kind of restricted protocol for those two devices to communicate. If I can pry a little bit, because I'm, I'm, I have no computer science background whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So if I can inference from what you just said, basically anytime you plug something into a hot connected computer, which would be a computer connected to the internet, it's vulnerable, correct? There's a lot of what ifs in that statement. Um, I, I would not argue at any means to say it's potentially vulnerable. Um, like that's a beneficial are, heuristic to think that way. 
I'm assuming. Right? Yeah, yeah. Right. I guess what I'm trying to get at is like in in your mind, what is the best way to communicate with the Bitcoin network? Can you outline for our audience the best heuristics for communicating with the Bitcoin network possible? Like what's right. the so, best practices for dealing with your private keys? When I was uh I was probably a teenager, McDonald's had this sandwich called the McLean. It came in this really awkward, messed up styrofoam container where they would put the lettuce, tomato, and one of the halves of the bun on one side, and they'd put the cheeseburger, uh, the actual burger, and the other bun on the other side, and their tagline with it was like, keep the hot side hot and the cold side cold, cool side cooler, whatever it was. Anyhow, with uh, when, when dealing with Bitcoin transactions, like that's kind of what for me, this uh, what Spectre DIY does and what we do is keeps the hot side hot and the cold side cold. And what I mean by that is you have two separate computing devices, one of which we'll just say is your laptop and your laptop is running a program like Spectre Desktop or maybe Sparrow or um, you know some other uh, coordinator. And when I say coordinator, all that means is that it uh, coordinates with the Bitcoin network. And it also, if you're using multisig, it coordinates assembling um, the key information such that you can create a multi-sig wallet. So the hot side is the side that's intended, the side that is designed to talk to the internet and the Bitcoin protocol. The cold side is this separate device that is intended just to interact with your private keys. Mm. So the idea behind this device is that it should never be physically connected to a computer that talks to the internet. It should never have any sort of like wireless protocol or wireless communication capability be that Bluetooth, be it Wi-Fi. I'm, I, I'm not even a fan of NFC. Um, so this separate device that interacts with your private keys um, in our model is kind of this ultra isolated computer that has a very limited means of communicating with the outside world. So you keep machine that is designed to interact with a Bitcoin protocol totally separate from another machine that is just intended to interact with your private keys. Does that, yeah. does that answer your question? It, yeah, it does. I just wanted that enumerated for our audience because a lot of times people can be very confused as to which side of things and why that matters. It's basically getting your Bitcoin signed transaction computer completely off sides or completely segregated from the internet connected computer 100%. And whether that means a cold card or whether that means a seed signer or whether that means a treasure, but the problem is with a Trezor or a Ledger, you are USB connecting that thing to your computer. So it's arguable whether or not the thing is completely segregated, which is the problem in, in general. And what I would what I would also point out is um, I, I don't want to like impugn like Trezor Ledger or any, you know, anybody else that uses this USB connection method, because one, that was a huge leap forward at the time when yeah. those devices came out, like a purpose built device with, you know, protections in place such that you can connect it and there's a reasonable amount of uh, uh, security in place to keep, you know, if your computer was infected to keep your private keys from being accessed or something like that. They, they were a huge advance forward and um, seed signer is designed with multi-signature cold storage for generational wealth in mind. Um, I think yeah. that for some of these other, uh, Bitcoin security models, like they may make a ton of sense for a wallet that you use a lot more frequently, or 
as a part of a quorum <clears throat> where you have, you know, a multi-sig setup where you're implementing, you know, three or four or five different devices that have all, you know, different hardware profiles, different code bases, different security trade-offs, different, you know, assurances, that sort of thing. So I, I, I do, I, I don't want to seem like I'm coming down on, you know, hardware wallets that are connected by USB or anything like that. This is just a different approach that I started to pursue because I was, um, the, the, the solution that Spectre DIY came up to me was a very elegant solution. And what, I, what I'll just say a little bit further with that is, like, I'm admittedly a cheapskate. And to build a Spectre DIY at that point was uh, like 120 bucks was probably about where it was at. And as I started to DM a little bit with the security researcher, Michael Flexman, he had this idea to use the Raspberry Pi Zero version 1.3. I didn't know it existed before he... Um, he tuned me into it to use that very specific version of Raspberry Pi to be able to create the last word of a seed phrase. So if you do the, like you take the BIP39 seed words, these are the words that people are familiar with when they initialize a hardware wallet and that you have to write down. Well, you can, you know, if you print and cut them out, you can, um, and in fact, most people should do this with a new hardware wallet instead of trusting the entropy that's supplied by the device. Um, but you can cut out all 2048 of these words, put them in a hat, essentially pick out your own seed phrase. But the last word operates as a, um, a mathematical checksum against the words that precede it. So Flaxman's idea was to use this Raspberry Pi Zero as a very naturally like air-gapped way to calculate the last word of the seed without you know ever having your, your seed exposed to a device that was online or anything like that. So I... I kind of took that concept and ran with it. I bought the little, uh, you know, screen and controls so that you could interact with the Pi, you know, without needing a keyboard and a monitor and everything. And I created a proof of concept for that. And then in my mind, I'm like, what if I took like a $5 Raspberry Pi camera and attached it to the setup? I, I could potentially recreate the, the basic functionality that was in that Spectre DIY. Um, that made so much sense to me uh, and kind of turn it into a full-fledged signing device to where you're not just creating keys, but you can actually, you know, sign full transactions with it. And, you know, this is a year and a half ago. So when Seed Signer was first kind of conceived of, I could walk into, there's a store by my house called Micro Center, uh, which is a national computer um, kind of chain. Mm -hmm. You could buy a Raspberry Pi Zero version 1.3 for five. Then you buy this little display hat online for 10 or 15 bucks and a $5 Raspberry Pi camera. You actually build this whole thing very reasonably for between 30 and 40 bucks when the whole thing first started. Supply chain stuff came in and kind of spoiled that for now. But um, I also, I think I mentioned before, I wanted to get into multi-sig. And to just get started with the most basic multi-sig, if you wanted to do it right, you need to buy at least three hardware wallets, right? Mm. So yeah. you got to spend yeah, right. two, three hundred dollars, whatever. Um, but this concept of statelessness appealed to my inner cheapskate because if, in fact, the device is not remembering the keys, then you right. can potentially use it to manage multiple keys within the same multi. -sig yeah. Quorum. So this thing could literally be your entire multi sig quorum if you wanted it to be. You know, right? Yeah. This is actually there. There is something beautifully simplistic about this, actually. Like when you when you think about a device where it's powered off and the seed and private key go away, like like what this DIY project, 
basically I'm thinking from an inheritance planning perspective, right? There's something tremendously physical and simple, right? When you're explaining to a spouse, like our Bitcoin is the seed, right? It's, it's the seed, whether that's split into three, whether that's one, whether whatever it, whatever setup you have, that is our Bitcoin. This is just an, this is literally just the device, the, the, the device it works through to interact with the protocol. There honestly is something that can be sold there from to, to a spouse from an inheritance planning perspective, let's say. This is back to what we were saying at the top of the show, like understanding all, all that matters is the, the private key to sign into Bitcoin. Like if you're explaining this to a total noob, that is what matters. And there, there's almost something about this process where you know you can be in, let's say you're the, the Bitcoin savvy person in your household. You're the one that builds a device like this. But then the other individuals that need to to understand what's actually going on, it's the physical seed that really matters. There is, I don't know if that makes sense, but there is something almost simplistic about this. There and there's it, it actually kind of improves on the an aspect of the security model of a traditional hardware wallet because people a lot of times don't make the mental connection that the private key that is being stored on your hardware wallet is a copy of usually two private keys, at least the two copies of that same private key, because when you initialize, you know, a treasure or any, what's the first thing they have you do write down these 24 words or these 12 words or whatever. So now when you're onboarding with that particular wallet, you have this device that holds a copy of your private key. But the very first thing it has you do is write down another copy of your private key. So now you're kind of stuck in this position where you have two copies of your private key. And what do you do with those? If you keep the written copy, because you need you, you do need to keep the written copy, because a lot of people have had the experience when they do a firmware upgrade or something, or what if they lose the device or it's damaged? Like you need to have that recovery mm, phrase. 100%. But do you, do you keep it with the hardware wallet? Like if you have a fire in your home, then like both of your, you know, things are destroyed. So what do you do with that written paper? Maybe you put it in a safe deposit box. But now you have kind of this second copy of your seed kind of floating around out there. And a lot of people, because they perceive, uh, you know, that the key on their treasure is being protected by a pin code, a lot of them won't use a passphrase to protect their seed. So this other seed that they have floating around, and we're just talking about single sig right now. Yeah. But this other copy of their seed that they have floating around is really like totally unprotected. So with two copies of your seed, you're actually kind of doubling your chances of having your seed disclosed, whether it's somebody gets a hold of your hardware wallet and they're able to either, you know, figure out your pin or somehow compromise the device, or somehow somebody's snooping in safe deposit boxes or wherever else you're you're keeping it, they stumble upon your private key. And so remember, with this needs signer, to be, I was gonna say this this has to this isn't next year. This is 11 years from now or 23 years from now or 40 years from now. Like people right, are thinking right, right. on a short-term time frame. We're talking about you passing away and your grandkids friend moping around. I don't know what the fuck, but we're t- we're talking a long time yeah. horizon here and this needs to hold up for that length of time. That's inheritance planning. Yeah, exactly. And this segues right into the point I want to make here, which is let's assume if you're listening right now, you've understood single sig and now we're moving on to multi-sig and multi-sig is a situation where you have multiple hardware wallets or signing devices that need to unlock your Bitcoin, right? So my question to you, Seed, is what is the best way for me 
to hold these seeds in separate places in, in order to get myself in a position where I'm not using Unchained, I'm not using Casa, I'm completely self-sovereign in this situation, general guidance on how people should do this. Yeah, no, um, definitely some suggestions. Let me rewind just for a second and um, say, so I was I was talking about having two copies of your key, mm. the backup and then the copy that's stored on your hardware wallet. With SeedSigner, one of the strengths of our model is that it encourages users to just focus on that one copy of their seed that they're going to keep. And a lot of people have uh, discovered they like to use SeedSigner for single sig, but the whole concept for me was built for multi. Yeah. So that if you're going to have a multi-sig setup, you just have to focus on keeping track of one single copy of each of your seeds right. for each member of the quorum. Mm -hmm. um, but to get back to your question, best practices in terms of um, the absolute best practice for multi-sig is to use multiple uh, hardware profiles, multiple wallets or signing devices with multiple code bases. And um, such that if a vulnerability is discovered in any one of those platforms, it gives your uh, quorum resilience against having that one particular member of the quorum compromised. Because multi-sig, um, it's not all positive with multi-sig. I think overall it's a net positive, yeah. but multi-sig does add additional complexity. Yeah, we talk about setup. this a lot on this yeah. show. Yeah, And it does add some some additional like kind of information storage requirements for, sure. um, for people because you're going to have multiple copies of your key, key not multiple keys rather that you're going to have to be tracking. And then right. in any multi-sig, regardless of who you set it up with, you want to track the descriptor as well and keep backups of that. Um, so no, but but let's be really clear about it? that. I'm sorry to, to stop you right there, no, no. but I, this is something that I had a problem with initially. And I think a lot of people misunderstand is when you run a multi-sig setup, you need to save that multi-sig wallet on an SD card or, or some other format in order to have the directions. Because even if you have three of the five keys, you still can't find it unless you have the like direction for the Bitcoin blockchain to find it, which is basically the wallet itself. There's kind of two ways you could recover from, um, let's say, you know, you have a, a wallet set up with Sparrow that's on your laptop and your laptop gets stolen or something like that. There's two potential ways that you can recreate that wallet. One way is you have to have every single private key that was in the original quorum yep. and you need to combine them in exactly the same way that you did uh, when you created the quorum originally. It's not as, not as complicated as it sounds, especially if you use the default kind of configuration settings. But the emphasis on that is you need every single private key. All of them. Unless yeah, right. the second way that you can you can recreate that uh, coordinator setup if for whatever reason you lose it, the second way is if you have what's called the full wallet descriptor. And what that includes is all of the configuration information for the wallet, and it includes a public version of all of the private keys that make up that particular forum. Um, just to be clear about, you know, for people, yeah. But here's here's where we're getting into added complexity. And this is like multi-sig is awesome. We've messed with it. We've used it. But it, it is an added level of complexity. Like, and you need to, this is where you need to walk before you run. Yeah. And this you is why you appreciate need, it. You need to start tinkering. Like if you're a serious Bitcoiner and you listen to this show and you're 
you're gung ho Bitcoin and you're scared of diving into the tech, like just get started, just get started, yeah. start messing with something, even if it's, you know, getting a ledger or a treasure. I mean, we, we're more and more, we're saying get a cold card, plug it into your computer with USB. You know, you can, you can use a cold card in a very simple way. Right. But what, whatever device you pick, whatever suggestion you get from the, your trusted source, just get, get started on this thing. Start exploring because you're not going to go to a totally self-sovereign multi-sig setup overnight, nor should you. Right. And what I would emphasize to people, don't be scared off by multi-sig. Um, it, we've talked about kind of like the, the things that make it harder. The, um, you, you, of course, have to keep track of multiple keys and you, of course, have have to keep track or should keep track of that descriptor. But what do you get from multi-sig? So what you get from multi-sig is one fault tolerance so that if you lose a private key, it's not the end of the deal for you. If, if you have a single SIG wallet and you lose a private key, like you're, you're screwed. Yeah. There's no recovery from that. Um, yeah. So one, it gives you fault tolerance. And two, it gives you the ability to geographically distribute the authentication to be able to spend your Bitcoin. So you can keep, Maybe a key at home, or you keep one in a safe deposit box, or you keep one with a trust relative, or like, you know, I, of course, have a bunch of cops who are fr uh, friends and gun nuts, and they all have a safe at their house. So maybe I keep one of my keys with a, a good friend in his gun safe, or whatever your, your personal kind of security situation is. Like, that's extremely powerful to be able to not only lose a key and recover from it, but to be able to spread your keys out the secrets that, you know, secure your Bitcoin to be able to spread those out to three, four, five different locations. Yeah. yeah I, sure. I think I often say, and this is, I don't mean to scare people and have them take steps overnight. They shouldn't. But if you have a setup where someone can walk into your house and access all of your Bitcoin by force, there's still, there's still work to be done in your self-custody setup. Like, Eventually, in my opinion, arrival means someone can walk into your home and you are unable to give your give them your Bitcoin. You know what I mean? And that's that's kind of where we graduate to with multi-sig. One question I have and we have, we are interacting with a demographic and an audience with a lot of questions about self-custody, and it becomes very practical for us. Like it's fun to have these mid to high-level conversations about custody, but a lot of people are just getting into this are scared, don't understand what's going on. We all remember what it felt like to, f to move our first meaningful chunk of Bitcoin, right? It's a, it's a pucker factor and we got to put ourselves back in those shoes. We, we are, I, I, we're fond of the casas and the unchains of the world. We know the drawbacks. We understand it's not the same as, as totally off the radar multi-sig in the sense that there is a centralized pinch point to see your balance. But in terms of inheritance planning and simplicity and the benefits of multi-sig without some of the trade-offs, it, it's, it's certainly in the, in the arsenal of options to use. Do you agree? What's your opinion on um, collaborative custody? No, I, I'm a big fan of collaborative custody. It's not for everybody. And some of us are what, what I've heard termed as like pathologically self-sovereign. But, um, <laughs> totally That's love that phrase. totally agree like it's this has got to work folks this has got to work pathologically self-sovereign people will start calling us cucks though if we start talking about that but whatever <laughs> we're, we're trying to make this fireman proof right like people need to be able to store this for 30 years pass it on to their wife like 
And multi-sig is a wonderful thing, but it is complex. And these companies are doing something unique and extremely helpful in my view. They, they provide two extremely uh, valuable services that I think are core to their their offering. And one is the handholding of the experience. So they're going to walk you through all of the education you need. And when you have those kind of like at pucker moment, like you're going to have a little bit more confidence because they've taken you through their process and given you presumably, you know, the, the necessary education about it. And then of course the, the second kind of big value add that like Unchained and Casa do is actually holding one of your keys so that um, if you lose one of, in a basic two or three, if you lose uh, one of your two keys, it's not the end of the world. You go to them and they have a reserve key and they'll help you do the necessary recovery steps. But um, no, I, I am, I, we need to have solutions for everybody out there. Mm. And for a lot of people who have kind of um, uh, that kind of anxiety you describe about either being unfamiliar with the te- technology or not familiar with the tools or, or you know, whatever it is, like it, they're providing an extremely valuable service, and I don't want to, yeah. I don't take anything away from them. Yeah. So let's. I I just want to steal man that for a second and take the other side of it. Like if you had to put your tinfoil hat on for a second and say why is it a terrible idea to go to Unchained or Casa? Why would you say that? The only thing I can come up with is you you'd end up dealing with a rogue employee who somehow tricked you into. Uh, hmm communicating your private key um but they still couldn't do anything with it because well, they, they got if they got one of your keys you're screwed you, you're saying you give up your key to a rogue employee yeah what if a rogue employee yeah. uh somehow convinces you to like give them both of your seed phrases oh gotcha and maybe and maybe they do this you know a couple times a year I assumed you were going to go a completely different direction and say like the U S government goes completely rogue and says Bitcoin's completely illegal. And now we want to know all the balances of all these people that have gone to Casa or unchained that yeah, to me, seems like the more likely leak fact. Yeah. 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 There's um, trade. Uh, there, no, there's, I, there's no perfect solution as we would all. I mean, th- that's not to scare people off. You need to self custody your Bitcoin, but this right. is a very individual and decision. For anybody it, listening to this, I mean, if 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 that ever became a thing, like yes, that's a possibility. You're like yeah, but the more likely thing is is that like somebody hacks their servers and finds out how much Bitcoin you have because they have your they don't have your private keys, but they have the XPubs to figure out how much money you actually have stored there. That's the more likely way that this would be a problem. I think we would all agree the net positive from these companies is much greater than the potential net negatives, which is like either A, you lose your money because you fucked up multi-sig and you're an idiot, much more likely than the US government makes Bitcoin illegal and they rat you out and you're fucked. Less likely in my opinion. But yeah. C, I'd love to hear your opinion on that. No, I, I totally agree. I, I guess... When you pose the question, I my mind probably goes to the worst case scenario, right. which for me is like the losing funds. your Bitcoin. Yeah, it, it's somebody after doing this for twenty customers, like uh, does a retirement attack and quits Unchained, and then like sweeps everybody's wallets, and it's like, oh, that's a bad situation. The uh, government having knowledge of the coins that you own is not ideal, um, and I I think Bitcoin can 
over time, I think fungibility is going to be a big deal and privacy is going to be a big deal, but tools just aren't there yet. Um, in terms of you can use Bitcoin in a significantly more private way. It is. It, it, it seems to me like it's it's a relatively complex. Yeah. Uh, I, I'd be curious to hear what you guys think about There's that. There's still I, work to I'm, be done. Yeah. 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 There's still work to be done. I actually think, see, this is, I think this is the next battle in Bitcoin because um, there's a lot of big players that are going to be clamoring for regulatory clarity, let's say in the financial landscape. And the beauty of Bitcoin is that this thing, without violating consensus rules, man, this thing evolves. And when we think about, you know, even SegWit to Taproot to cross input SIGAG, I mean, who knows what the future holds, but like fungibility is going to improve whether people like it or not. I just think there could be big players, especially when uh, policymakers kind of catch wind of what the implications of these upgrades might mean. I think there are going to be some Bitcoiners that actually resist it a little bit. Have you guys ever thought about that or gamed that out in terms of it kind of going mainstream and institutional at this point? I mean, there's a lot of people in this space that aren't sovereignty and privacy minded, man. And I'm I'm not knocking them, but they're thinking at it of it more as an a, from an economic asset. I don't think lens. they're going to have a choice. I think that it's just going to probably happen and they're going to they may be along for the ride and they don't even realize it. Yeah, you're right. I mean, the people that are going to be developing on it at its core are probably going to be more cypherpunk-esque than, uh, than the average hedge fund. God, I hope so. You know? It, it kind of goes back to what we learned during the Fork Wars during 2017. A lot of takes on that. But like, basically, a certain group tried to co-opt Bitcoin because they yeah. felt that more transaction throughput via bigger blocks was the best thing for the network and it didn't work out. And what you're kind of talking about is, is kind of the same thing. Like what if certain high profile, very invested individuals think that enhanced privacy might inhibit gains with a Z. And so, (laughs) (laughs) and you know, my, my hope is that, like you said, the, the cypherpunk ethos, uh, stay strong and that the people who are really doing the difficult protocol work and who are developing these tools, um, you know, just keep building the stuff that, that they want. And I, I think I worry less, but I worry less. Number one, I need to uh, figure out a place where I can buy one of these raspberry Pi zeros for less than like a hundred dollars because it's pretty much not possible right now. They'll, they'll come back online. They'll come back online. Yeah, we're both building one of these seed. I can guarantee you that. Let's yeah. let's um let's offline talk about that. I I may happen to have like a uh, a S- secret stash. <laughs> when the so last summer when when people were stacking stats, I you were stacking, stacking you were stacking pies. You were stacking yeah, pies. <laughs> I'm starting to run a little bit lower, but I do have a few that, um, especially for people who are curious, want to build. Yeah, one. we like, got I, some. I, I love to help people out. We got some black market pies. I'm definitely pie curious. <laughs> I curious. Yeah, I'm going to steal that one. I think. <laughs> yeah. Seed, we could talk to you for another like two hours, man. We're gonna. Uh, I'm gonna get back to my family in the living room. Also, I'm sitting on. <sighs> I'm sitting on this really uncomfortable chair. I feel like I've got a stick up my ass right now. Like my back's tight. Um, if I was in a more I've comfortable chair. I've seen you chair, adjusting posture. Like yeah, a little, yeah. A little bit, I am yeah. like, I don't know what's going on here, but uh, even just for, for my own back health, 
um, and the longevity of my firefighting <laughs> career. I think we've got to call this you're, here. You're getting to an age where that you'll feel that tomorrow. Yeah. Um, seriously love this talk. So I am on, on Twitter rather, um, just seed signer, two words, seed and signer put together on telegram. I'm the same thing. If, uh, if you're maybe less technical and you want to learn more about the project, it's just seed all one word seed Or if you go to GitHub and search for seed signer, you'll find it right away. Uh, if you're more technical and, and want to kind of learn more about the, uh, code and the underpinnings of it. But yeah, I, I've really enjoyed this opportunity to talk with you guys. I, I feel like we could do this again sometime for sure. And, um, let's, uh, yeah, we need to get one of these in your hands and then maybe have another conversation uh, six months from now. Yeah. yeah. Maybe we'll see you in person too at a freedom forum or something in the future. We haven't been to that, but we, uh, that's on our radar for sure. Maybe in the next couple of years. I'm, uh, so I'm, I'm leading a workshop in Switzerland in August at a, uh, gosh, I would, I'm going to, it's, it's a German name for this conference and I'll mess it up if I try to say it, but, uh, uh, yeah, I'm not oh. going to try to say it. It's in Switzerland in August. Look at my Twitter feed. There'll be something out there. I'm All actually right. planning on being in El Salvador in, um, November for the adopting lightning conference. I always get confused if it's adopting Bitcoin or adopting lightning, but the, the second annual, uh, El Salvador Bitcoin conference, uh, I, I've been announced as a speaker there and we should be hosting a workshop to get some Wait, seed signers in, in some local you- people's hands. Are you planning to be in, uh, at Bitcoin 2023? Uh, that's, that's the plan. I haven't, uh, right. like looked closely at any information. Well, I mean, we'll yeah. for sure see you there. If, if he, if, if we, else. if we outed him, he'd have to kill us though, Josh. Yeah. So, um, I know. it's true. <laughs> yeah. See, but, thank um, you so much, man. Seriously. This was a yeah, blast. Yeah. And I, I mean, I can't, I can't say enough how cool this project is like back to, we didn't maybe get enough into the human rights empowerment aspect, but this is really significant back to a point I made earlier. It's not that you will, but it's that you can, this is a, an opportunity to extend sovereignty for people that might be under duress with Bitcoin at some point in the future. And, um, seriously, thank you for what you're up to. Yeah. Thanks. Absolutely. Take care. Thanks so much for listening into the show. If you enjoyed this discussion, be sure to like or subscribe on whatever app you're using for podcasts or on YouTube. And if you have an extra minute, go ahead and leave us a review. We are also active on Twitter at blue underscore collar BTC. And our email address is bluecollarbitcoinpodcast at gmail.com. We invite questions, comments, or inquiries of any kind. We look forward to you joining us again on the BCB podcast. Thank <laughs> you.